now, without further ado, here is Ori Olson, a professor, to uh, do the course as Narnia. Welcome, Narnia. Excellent. Thank you, Hologron. Can I just say, I, I, I have never... It, you're wearing the cloak of the cluck, which, of course, I've seen, and indeed, uh, my friend Wigan has, which he got uh, with your assistance. However, that, that chicken helm that you are wearing is truly spectacular. Uh, you can get it at the fall festival. Uh, it's a fall festival thing? Yep. Wow. That's uh, quite something. Yeah, it's pretty intense. Okay, cool. Sorry, just I uh, couldn't not help but admire the chicken helm there. All right. Okay, very good. Thank you, everybody, um, uh, for joining us tonight, class number 21 of uh, the Exploring the Lord of the Rings class uh, as we continue to plow our way through book one uh, of the Lord of the Rings. So, um, this evening... We are going to, my goal, should we reach that goal, is to finish Chapter 5 today. Uh, a rash and hasty goal, but there it is, um, uh, uh, in celebration of which I have titled today's class, We Must Away. Uh, so, uh, this is, we're going to be looking at, of course, the departure uh, from Crick Hollow, the preparations for departure from from. Crick Hollow. But of course, that's a line from the song, which is a line from the old song as well. And uh, we're going to be beginning by talking about uh, that, the adaptation of that song and uh, uh, what it sort of suggests in the parallels that it's establishing and stuff. Uh, kind of uh, uh, kind of interesting. So, okay. Uh, let, we'll, 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 we will do all that first. We're going to begin uh, with a couple notes and queries as usual. Now, there were two major uh, points of discussion on the discussion board this week, uh, one of which was bridges over the Baranduin, uh, which we will get to. I'm not going to talk about bridges over the Baranduin now at the beginning of class. We'll save that for the beginning of our field trip, but we'll, we'll address that. I've, I've, I've received much correspondence on the subject of bridges over the Baranduin, so we'll get there. Uh, and uh, But uh, the other, of course, is the conspiracy. And I wanted to go back and follow up on those. Uh, at the beginning here, because of course that was what we were talking about last time. Lots of really interesting uh, thinking that you guys were doing. Uh, so I want to I want to begin with that. Um, all right. So first, however, um, uh, Simon Orozco had a really good uh, questionnaire. Says everyone knows that uh, Tolkien was an expert at retconning things and coming up with believable explanations for mistakes or random tidbits he hadn't really considered previously. We also know that there are a lot of questions we as readers ask that Tolkien simply never answered in his writing, and in some cases probably never even considered. My question is, to what extent do you think our speculative answers to such questions differ from the answers Tolkien himself might have come up with if he had been asked during his lifetime? Is there even any way to know such a thing? Um, well, as for that um, as for that last question, no. No, there's really no way to know such a thing. Um, and of course, you know, you can, you can kind of guess and speculate and, and sort of, you know, hope that you're kind of saying what Tolkien might have said, right, when it comes to it, but who knows, right? And it's one of the, however, there, so there are kind of two things, Simon, that I want to say in, in, uh, uh, in response to this. Thing number one is, no, we can't know what Tolkien would have thought. And it's one of the reasons why I, I try to emphasize, I try to draw a distinction between when I'm answering questions, 
uh, I mean, obviously, stuff like this has has come up um, has come up a lot, right? Uh, I mean, I've been I've been I've been doing the the Tolkien professor gig for like almost ten years now, and in you know answering people's questions and talking with people about stuff uh, you know about Tolkien for over the years, I try to differentiate between that question has an answer right within Tolkien's writings, and here's what we can see. And the kinds of answers, Simon, that you're talking about, right, where we sort of speculate and build off of, uh, you know, what we have in order to answer other questions that aren't addressed anywhere. Um, I am never shy about doing that. Um, And the primary reason that I am not shy about doing that is because exactly, Simon says, Tolkien did that himself all the time. Um, And if you follow the pattern that Tolkien used, because what Tolkien did, and this always really, really impresses me, um, you can see this a lot in his letters. It's my favorite part of his letters. Um, a lot of people really like to see what, um, uh, you know, like sort of insider stuff and like the interactions with his, the members of his family and him talking about, you know, other kind of outside life circumstances and stuff. And it's fun. I mean, I, 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 that, that's really valuable and really interesting in a lot of ways. But for me, what I love most about the letters are those times when he is responding to questions about his works. Um, and I have almost never heard any author respond to questions about their works in the way that Tolkien did. Um, usually, I find, when authors are asked about their works, they will, like, kind of talk about what they were thinking, or they will you know, maybe give you some background into, like, how this idea emerged or whatever. Um, Tolkien, whenever he was answering questions about The Lord of the Rings, would always approach it almost as if it was written by somebody else, right? That is, what he would do is he would go back and he would do close readings of his own text um, and do really careful analysis. And sometimes he would, as Simon says, sort of speculate and build off of it. And he did certainly love to go back and and retcon things, you know, to go back and uh, uh, come rather than, you know, rather than fixing a, a mistake or a discrepancy that he would f- that he found, he would much rather come up with a long and complicated explanation for how that discrepancy got into the written record in the first place. Right. That's way more fun. Um, but it involves um, it involves a kind of uh, uh, uh a kind of both a combination of close reading and creativity, right? And he would uh, and he would sort of build off that. Now sometimes he would add, like make up stuff, right? He would add information that hadn't been in the original text. Um, uh, you can see this, for instance, in the letters in which he responds about uh, Hobbit birthday traditions, for instance, um, where he you can see that he's sort of fleshing things out and saying stuff that he doesn't say in the text. So it's not just a matter of close reading, but very often he will answer the question by going back and he'll quote his own text at length, you know, and sort of think think it through. Um, and I think that's really a lot of fun. Um, and so anyway, so I love seeing him do this. So when people ask me questions that aren't answered in the text, some scholars prefer just to be prudent, right, and say, well, we don't really know, we can't really answer that question, and that's true, Right. But I kind of, myself, I'm always happy to kind of enter into that. I try to maintain the distinction, right, of when I'm saying, here's what Tolkien says, and when I'm saying, hey, I don't know, let's speculate. Um, 
But that's the game that Tolkien himself loved to play, so it seems to me, like, why shouldn't we play it too, right? It seems actually like a perfectly respectful way to treat the text, uh, since it's how Tolkien himself treated the text. So um, I've always I've always found that really fun. So anyway, so I do... Uh, I, but, but again, I do think it's important just to make sure that you keep it clear, right? What is analysis of what's there and what is building on what's there in order to uh, in order to, to, to come to a sort of a speculative conclusion. Yes, Oakwig says, like Christopher Tolkien. It's true. Christopher Tolkien uh, very often will not speculate. He's very conservative uh, when, it, when, it, when it comes to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so uh, it's, it's, uh, it's fun. I don't mind. I do it. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty shameless about doing it. Uh, and I, but again, we can't... It's always really tempting to sort of convince yourself, like, this is totally what Tolkien really thought, right? This is what Tolkien would have written had he gone on to write it. Uh, and we totally have no idea, <laughs> right? And we're probably wrong about a lot of those things. Uh, but anyway, so I, I'm, 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 glad, so I'm really glad you brought this up, because I think this is a really important general issue, and it's good to, it's good to, to sort of raise it. Um, good to keep each other honest about, uh, about this. Wonderful observation, uh, from Kitfin. This is about Sam. It's sort of indirectly connected uh, with the conspiracy. But this is a really, really neat thinking through this element of the text. Uh, and especially following up, uh, as Kit is doing here, on a bunch of the, the conversation we've had about the different social classes uh, among the hobbits here and, and, and among the hobbit party, what it means for Sam to be a servant and the implications of sort of Sam's status and role and things. Uh, some really interesting stuff here from Kit. It seems to me that the person most problematic in getting out of the Shire without causing the whole place to erupt with gossip is Sam. That Sam would listen, that is, you know, listen outside the window, strikes me as not needing explaining. Servants did listen. Uh, what he would have ethical issues with is telling, but Merry and Pippin seem to me the least of those who would expect him to talk. There is no way Sam was the only servant in the house. It does seem that all the servants lived out but Bilbo and Frodo had the reputation of being wealthy, even if one trades on the intense interest of food on the part of the hobbits and postulate that they did their own cooking, there is no way that they were doing their own laundry and scrubbing their own floors. There would have been at least one indoor servant. This person would have expected gossip over cups of tea. The local neighborhood would have been buzzing with interest. Uh, and uh, and I would say, Kit, remember all that about tongues began to wag, right? There's plenty of gossiping, certainly, that goes that, uh, uh, on in Hobbiton. Uh, let me pause here to um, to add, this seems to me probably correct. Um, is it possible that Sam Gamgee is like the, 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 the primary or even lone servant at Bag End? That seems conceivable. I, I can conceive of that. That certainly is explicitly the plan in Crick Hollow, right? When Sam is going to move to Crick Hollow with Frodo, is going to move to Crick Hollow to quote do for Mister Frodo, right? That means he's going to be he's going to be his manservant, right? He's going to be uh, out there and he's going to be like pretty much doing all the stuff. Um, that doesn't mean that there wouldn't potentially be other servants who would occasionally come in and do things or something. And I certainly agree. It does sound like there are no resident servants uh, at Beg End. The servants do live out. Um, anyway, as I said, I, 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 I think it conceivable that Sam is actually the, the sort of, you know, do-all servant of Frodo at Bag End. 
But I would not at all be surprised to find that there was also, you know, a, a somebody who who came in and did the cleaning and took the laundry out and brought it back and that kind of thing. That that seems to me altogether probable. Uh, and so certainly there would be sort of a, a a good deal of gossip about what was going on at Bag End. Not only because that would be normal anyway, um, but of course in the case of the masters of Bag End, right? We have a peculiar reputation for oddity and strangeness, so uh, there would be the more gossip, I would think. Um, so, but anyway, let's, let's continue on here. But most of all, there is the question of the gaffer. If they owned that cottage, we have Sam's social status all wrong. Most likely it went with the gardening job, which Sam is leaving, but there is no hint that the gaffer is moving. Uh, in fact, it's explicit that the gaffer is not moving. Um, Sam is moving to Crick Hollow, and the gaffer is going to stay because he's going to have Lobelia Sackville Baggins as a neighbor, right? Um, okay, uh, let's see. Sam lives with and most likely supports his father. There are other children belonging to the gaffer. Sam is described as the gaffer's youngest son, therefore there are others. Yes, he does have several brothers. Uh, two, if I remember correctly. Is the gaffer moving in with one of them? Is another son or son-in-law taking over the gardening job? Sam would have gotten a boatload of questions from his father and his family over his decision, even if he stuck to his cover story with all of them. He has to have done so with his siblings. Someone would have talked. But even then, there would have been huge amounts of gossip. The gaffer? I suspect Sam revealed some of what was really going on. Frodo was a rich bachelor with no close family ties. Merry and Pippin are presumably just going to disappear. But Sam? Not so much. Um, okay, a um, couple things here. First of all, I don't think, uh, I, I, I do agree, Gaffer Gamgee does not own his house. Uh, number three, Bagshot Road does not belong to the Gamgees. They, they do not own the deed to that. That seems to me very clear. Um, you can tell because of how they're turned out of it eventually, Right. Um, you know, when uh, 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 the, when they dig up Bagshot Row, uh, you'll notice they cannot, they do not, they have not quite yet proceeded uh, to, um, uh, that is, Sharky's men, right, have not yet proceeded to actually seizing the land of, like, freeholder hobbits. Farmer Maggot might complain about the, uh, Farmer Cotton, rather, might complain about the gatherers and sharers, um, but he still has his own farm. Right? It's not been seized from him. Um, the gaffer is turned out of Bagshot Row because he can be. Right? Uh, 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 Lotho Sackville Baggins owns Bag End. Right? His father's dead. Uh, uh, he and his mother, meaning him probably legally, owns Bag End uh, and therefore also Bagshot Row. Now, as far as the gaffer's position in Bagshot Row, I had never thought of... Um, of the of number three bagshot row is necessarily being the gardener's cottage attached uh, to bag end. Um, it's possible that that might once have been, but I don't think that Sam's house that the gaffer and the gaffer lives with Sam. I think it's the gaffer's house and Sam lives with him. Um, it's the gaffer's house. Again, he doesn't own it, but he lives there. I suspect as a pensioner, he has been, he was the gardener for decades and decades uh, with Mr. Bilbo, and it would have been pretty, ca with a uh, a benevolent master, 
it would have been very common for an old retired servant like Gaffer Gamgee, who no longer is the gardener at Bag End, but he's retired, for him to be kept in one of the cottages, one of the one of the you know the estate cottages, uh, as a pensioner. And I suspect that that's the relationship uh, between Gaffer Gamgee and his house, um, and that Sam still lives with him so that he can help his aging father. His his aging father. He is there, Sam is there, not as the rising head of the household. He is indeed the youngest son. But the other two sons have moved out. They, they live elsewhere um, and are doing their own, they're working their own jobs and things. Um, Sam, who is still local, uh, is the one who lives with his dad. Um, so I do, so Gaffer Gamgee, I believe, lives in th- number three Bagshot Row of, uh, on his own. But he doesn't own it. Um, and this is why the sale of Bag End to the, to the Sackville Bagginses puts him in a shaky situation. The Sackville Bagginses could turn him out of his hole uh, and send him packing if they wanted to. It would be a, a jerk thing to do, but they would have the legal right to do that. And in fact, of course, as we know, that's exactly what they're going to do. Now, notice that the Sackville Bagginses are still not jerks enough just to turn him out onto the street and leave him homeless, right? Even the Sackville Bagginses, um, you know, uh, uh, they they, they uh, try to set up that, like, they, 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 they're, it's at the stage where they're still making ugly houses and stuff. Uh, to replace the stuff that they're tearing down. Um, uh, but anyway, he's turned out with his stuff and his his bits of things in a barrow, as Sam sees in the mirror of Galadriel, right? So um, so clearly, Gaffer Gamgee lives in Bagshot Row at the pleasure of the owner of Bag End. Um, and we do see that, um, that power sort of wielded. So now about Sam leaving then. Where does that put, uh, put it with Sam leaving? Would he have to explain himself to his siblings? Well, probably. But remember, he's got, in a way, a pretty good cover story. Um, he's going to go uh, to Crick Hollow to do for Mr. Frodo, right? So he's he's moving. Frodo's keeping him as his servant. So he's going and he's moving with Mr. Frodo. Um, you may remember, um, there's the line about that um, way back in, in Chapter 3. Um, is a little bit, uh, here, let me see if I can come up with it. I was just looking at, I want to make sure I'm quoting it correctly. Um, uh, let's see. Okay. Yes. It had been officially announced that Sam was coming to Buckland to do for Mr. Frodo and look after his bit of garden, an arrangement that was approved by the gaffer, though it did not console him for the prospect of having Lobelia as a neighbor. Now, the question is, how do you interpret that line? It did not console him for the prospect of having Lobelia as a neighbor. You could read that. I think I often have read that as being almost sarcastic, right? That, like, Sam moving away was a bad thing, and then on top of that, right, is the even worse thing of having Lobelia as a neighbor. But I'm not really sure. Um... If we take it more literally, if we take it non-sarcastically, it did not console him implies that it's a good thing, right? That on the one, he's receiving a good news and bad news, right? The bad news is that Lobelia uh, is, uh, uh, is going to be his neighbor, but the good news 
that is supposed to console him but inadequately consoles him for having Lobelia as a neighbor is that his son Sam is going to move with Mr. Frodo to Crick Hollow. Now, I don't think this is meant to imply that Sam, you know, like Sam leaving is a is a good thing in the gaffer's opinion, um, but that it's an honor, I think, is how we're supposed to read that, that, that he's meant to be pleased, that they are pleased, um, that Sam is being... Uh, is, is 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 being is being kept with him, right? That, that they're not being turned out, which could happen, right? Especially if, as is implied, right, in the public face, right, uh, that uh, Mr. Frodo is going bankrupt, right, and therefore presumably would might have to might have to you know fire all of his uh, servants, uh, you know, to 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 let all of his servants go. But he's not letting Sam go, so Sam still has a place, right? Sam still has a job. And that's a good thing. So Mr. Frodo has gone bankrupt, and that's bad. And he's moving, and that's bad. But Frodo, but Sam still has a place, uh, and that's good. Um, you know, it doesn't console him for uh, Lobelia uh, coming. So it seems to me, therefore, that Sam's, um, you know, Crooked Heart is asking, uh, um, is going with Frodo a step up in the world for Sam? I kind of think so. Um, uh, you know, Matt was just suggesting that doing for Mr. Frodo would be a promotion from Gardner. I suspect so. I'm a little, I'm a little weak on this, but I mean, my memory of 19th century British literature suggests that, which is where where I've learned all this from, uh, would suggest that yes, being if if he's going to do for Mr. Frodo, like if he's going to be if he's being promoted essentially from, from gardener to valet, basically not the, or valet, not that, uh, uh, not that the hobbits use that word. We have any evidence that they, that they use that word. Um, but you know, he's becoming his personal manservant. That is definitely a promotion, uh, from, uh, from gardener, which is relatively low on the, on the servant scale. Gardner is, I mean, normally, um, maybe different, uh, in the Shire, of course. Um, but, um, yeah, exactly, Tungo. Valet is too French. Even if you pronounce it the English way and call him a valet, uh, it's, uh, it's still, it's still a little too French. I can't imagine Tolkien using that word, uh, in a Hobbit context. Um, but, uh, anyway, so that seems to be a satisfactory explanation. Um, but it's still a big deal. I, and the the thing that I really um, the thing that I really love about um, uh, about Kit's observation is that I think that she's right to say in a sense Sam although they would be people would be gossiping about what Frodo and and Mary and Pippin are doing because they're like the wealthy and everyone's always going to be um, you know is always going to be gossiping about you know what those crazy local rich people are doing. Um, yeah, and yes, Harnoth exactly. Uh, Batman technically, but that word is not used either, right? Yeah, uh, and for and for those of you who don't know, um, and of course, it's always a, an incredibly fun joke to to uh, to to make, right? In the in the DC Comics context, right? Sam as Batman, um, but yes, a Batman was the personal man was an officer's personal manservant in the British Army, um, 
And uh, in World War One, of course, this was a common thing. All of the officers had their Batman. And yes, that is exactly that that role, that relationship between the officer and the Batman is very much like um, the the relationship between Frodo and Sam. That's that's uh, been commented upon many times uh, over the years, and I think is is certainly perfectly true. Um, but that's not a word that's used in the text either. So we don't really have, uh, we don't really have the sort of native Hobbit term for that. Um, but anyhow, okay. Um, uh, interesting. Finn says, but Sam never thought of himself as anything other than Frodo's gardener. And I'm pausing for a second to think, is that true? He acts. He acts like his Batman. He acts more like his manservant, like his valet, than like his gardener. Um, a gardener wouldn't be sitting at the bedside of his master when his master was ill, like Sam does in Rivendell, right? Um, it seems to me entirely, uh, entirely in keeping with Sam's humility that he would still call himself Frodo's gardener um, because, you know, he's not going to sort of, you know, preen himself on uh, having earned a a more elevated title, right? Um, But, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I know that makes sense to me that he would that he would do that. Um, yeah, yeah, um, and yes, uh, uh, Tom, I agree. Uh, Sam also has a different understanding of what they're doing than the general run of hobbits do. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, I mean, look, the fact is, you know, Frodo is not in the normal position of a normal, you know, master. Like the relationship between Frodo and Sam as they go on their journey is it's that the, the normal categories, right, of, uh, of master and servant kind of break down. Um, but, uh, but yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I do think, I do think that, um, uh, Sam thinking of himself as, as the gardener would be, would be, a a, a humility thing, basically. Um, okay. So, Anyway, so that's as much as to say I do agree about there being a very different kind of gossip and sort of controversy about Sam's departure. Um, But I think, Kit, that his cover story is probably stronger than you're thinking it is. Um, I don't think he'd be getting pressure from his siblings. I mean, there might be a little bit of pushback, like, dude, I thought you were living with Dad. Now now we got to find somebody else to take care of Dad, right? Um... You know, there might be, who knows, but perhaps that kind of conversation might have happened with his siblings. But at the same time, they would understand, right? I mean, he is Frodo's servant. Frodo moved, right? Frodo is offering to take him along. He goes, right? I mean, to to turn, to leave his position in order to stay with his father. I mean, he would be that torn in two, right, about the, that choice, but 
but nevertheless, I, I don't think anyone would very seriously question, like, he stays in his place, right? I mean, he keeps his place. He keeps his job. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. A, a bunch of people are mentioning uh, lots of different parallels from literature of other uh, servants. Um, I do think that would be, I agree uh, with Tom, it would be interesting to see how Sam fits in uh, with those, to, to, to see a, a kind of a closer comparison. That would be a really interesting paper, actually, to look at Sam and his relationship with Frodo and to be comparing that. Uh, again, a, a lot of people have written about, you know, comparing Sam and Frodo to, to an officer in Batman in World War One. Uh, and and I, I totally agree. It's completely valid. Um, what would be really interesting, as Tom is suggesting, is to compare Sam to the representation of other servants uh, in, you know, like late Victorian literature. Um, you know, both literature that was being written around the time that this was written and literature that had been written maybe in the previous 50 years or so. Um, there would be there would be a lot of interesting things there. Marielle wants to see a, a comparison between Sam Gamgee and Sancho Panza. All right. Yeah, that would be interesting. Um, but um, yeah, sure, absolutely. There's uh, there's there's a lot uh, a lot that could be done there. That'd be really interesting. Okay, well, let's carry on. Um, here, um, I'm going to read. Uh, uh, Matt, I see you're here with us again this evening. Welcome back. Um, Matt wrote a, Matt DeForest wrote a, a really uh, long and thoughtful post about this, which I'm gonna I'm gonna I usually I try to cut them down to one slide, but I'm gonna give all of this because he does what I was kind of wanting to do anyway after our discussion last week. I was like, I really kind of want to go back and, and pull together those passages from the text that, that relate to this and kind of back up and look at it again. And then here Matt did all the work for me. So uh, thanks, Matt. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, uh, uh, just utilize that here. Um, okay. Uh, Matt says, The first surprise I came across was how long Mary may have been involved in the conspiracy, of course. Indeed, I suspect that he is the chief instigator of the conspiracy based on what he might have overheard. I agree with that. Back in chapter one, he is the one who is helping Frodo distribute Bilbo's gifts and shelter him from the Sackville Baggins. While I was looking backwards through the passages before Sam's misadventure, I came across this passage. When he had overcome Sancho and pushed him out, Frodo collapsed on a chair in the hall. It's time to close the shop, Mary, he said. Lock the door and don't open it to anyone today, not even if they bring a battering ram. Then he went to revive himself with a belated cup of tea. As soon as he sits down, however, Gandalf arrives and they discuss briefly Bilbo's magic ring, not yet revealed to be the One Ring, and how there are two stories of its finding. But there is no mention of Mary's departure. Nor would a departure be expected. After all, Brandy Hall and the Great Smiles, the other obvious places he might stay, are rather distant. Staying with his cousin to help him get settled in is far more likely. He would have had he would have been a lad at that time by Hobbit reckoning and easily forgotten in the other room. What he overheard might have made him begin thinking that Frodo should be watched. I love this idea. Um, so Matt, this is a, a great observation. At first, of course, Mary is there, and as Matt points out, this is remember this is seventeen years earlier than the conspiracy unmasked, right? Uh, so 17 years before, Mary is still going to be like a teenager at this point, right? Um, but he, uh, uh, you know, so it, we're not told explicitly that he overhears Gandalf and, and, uh, uh, and, and Frodo's conversation, but he says 
in the conspiracy unmasked that he uh, that he confesses he, he confesses actively to spying, right? Um, now that was on Bilbo to learn more about the One Ring and to to try to get uh, to to read the book and stuff. But we know that he has a pattern of this kind of thing, right? That he's doing this kind of stuff. So most likely, yes, uh, I, I would not be a bit surprised if he were spying on Frodo and Gandalf uh, to uh, overhear what they're saying, in which he would learn here that the, uh, you know, he, he would learn a little bit more about the magic ring, about the two stories of its finding and the fact that Gandalf thinks it's interesting um, that, uh, uh, that Bilbo told him uh, the real story. Um, so, okay. So I agree. That's, um, uh, I, I see no reason not to think that Mary was, uh, I see no reason not to think that Mary was involved, you know, was already kind of spying. This is part of Mary spying and gathering information. Okay. We certainly get a sense, Matt goes on, that Mary and Pippin are watching him closely based on brief comments through chapter two. His closest friends were Peregrine Took, usually called Pippin, and Mary Brandybuck. His real name was Mary Attic, but that was seldom remembered. Frodo went tramping over the Shire with them, but more often he wandered by himself, and to the amazement of sensible folk, he was sometimes seen far from home, walking in the hills and woods under the starlight. Mary and Pippin suspected that he visited the elves at times, as Bilbo had done. Sorry, the, uh, the emphasis added didn't translate when I pasted it, and he emphasized that last sentence, of course. So it went until his forties were running out and his fiftieth birthday was drawing near. Fifty was a number that he felt was somehow significant or ominous. It was at any rate at that age that adventure had suddenly befallen Bilbo. Frodo began to feel restless, and the old path seemed too well trodden. He looked at maps and wondered what lay beyond their edges. Maps made in the Shire showed mostly white spaces beyond its borders. He took to wandering further afield, and more often by himself, and Mary and his other friends watched him anxiously. Often he was seen walking and talking with strange wayfarers that began at this time to appear in the Shire. Okay, good. So, um, notice the two things here. First, the business about Marion Pippin suspecting that he visited the elves at times. That does imply, uh, you know, Matt, I agree with your emphasizing that sentence, right? What can we see there? Marion Pippin talking about Frodo, right? We can see the conspiracy under the surface there, right? As they are talking about Frodo, wondering what he's up to uh, and being concerned. Remember, Mary says to Frodo in the conspiracy unmasked, that they had expected him to go a long time ago, right? I mean, since Bilbo's left, they've been watch- they've been watching him for seventeen years, thinking that he might leave at any time, right? And then they've been getting more and more anxious in recent time as he approaches fifty, right? He is uh, beginning to feel restless, and he's looking at maps and wondering what lay beyond their edges, and he wanders further afield and more often by himself. And we're told explicitly that Mary and his other friends watched him anxiously. Um, so, so okay, so are Mary and Pippin conspiring? Clearly, I think clearly. Um, and we know, Mary says that, you know, his own suspicions and their, uh, their, their, so when did they form their conspiracy? You know, Mary and Pippin and his other friends, my guess would be then. Now, they, they, they've always been talking about Frodo, right, and concerned about him. Um, but the act of conspiracy is probably right around the time that Frodo is beginning to, uh, to get um, restless, right? Uh, and things begin to look a little, bit, a little bit more intense. Okay, so Matt finishes. 
I would also note that the passage that immediately follows Sam's plotting about how to get close enough to eavesdrop speaks of many times Gandalf had come and gone over about five years before disappearing for close to ten. That is a long time for Merry and Pippin to have recruited Sam, who they would have seen often, uh, uh, would have seen often over the years. Okay, so the implication is, so Matt is suggesting Gandalf had come and gone quite a bit for five years, right? And but it's been it's been nine years now since they've last seen him. So Matt is suggesting that Merry and Pippin might have recruited Sam ten years ago, right? During the time when Gandalf was coming and going quickly. That makes sense to me. I'm willing to I'm willing to buy that uh, because, of course, remember it's Gandalf that they you know Gandalf coming and and meeting with Frodo that would alarm them, right? Thinking that he was sending Frodo off on an adventure like he did Bilbo, right? And of course, since the whole point of their conspiracy is they don't want Frodo to go alone, and as a subset, they don't want to miss the adventure either themselves. Right, so they are looking after him. Could they have? Would they have recruited Sam at that point ten years ago? And just Sam hasn't really had all that much necessarily to do for the last ten years. Um, possibly, that seems. I, I, again, as I say, I'm willing to believe that. Um, uh, oh, and, and and you're right. And then Matt points out that he, Sam, and Mary are roughly contemporaries and would have been listening to stories uh, from Bilbo together. That they are about the same age. That's true. Um, he was now, of course, they're not peers, right? So they wouldn't exactly be uh, be rubbing elbows with each other. But um, but can I imagine a group of you know Hobbit youngsters uh, that included you know Pippin, Merry, and Sam, and others? You know, uh, yes, I can imagine Bilbo including Sam uh, in the uh, you know in the group of 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 you know Hobbit uh, children uh, that were listening to his stories. Um, okay. He was already employed at Bag End before Bilbo left and was a noted source of information. In the gaffer's testimony about the long-expected party in Chapter 1, Sam is cited by the gaffer as the source of some information, including that everyone is going to get a present. Yes, the knowledgeable Sam, he is called, right? Sam does know. Uh, So Sam does have a history of being the source of information, kind of like his dad, right, who is also a source of information, and seems to quite enjoy being a source of information. Uh, we know that uh, uh, Gaffer Gamgee is a, you know, a sort of dedicated neighborhood gossip, right, down drinking at the ivy bush with his cronies. Um, Sam is Sam the same kind of gossip that his dad is? We don't really know. It doesn't say explicitly. That's not the kind of conversation necessarily we see him having at the Green Dragon when we meet him at the beginning of Chapter 2 there. Um, but I think that Matt's point is very well taken, right? That he is, um, because he is the primary member of the lower classes of Hobbiton, who is an insider at Bag End, that's why he's the knowledgeable Sam. Right. Um, okay, if Sam had been keeping an eye on Frodo for the conspiracy for several years, it would make the comment about being on parole feel more plausible, both in terms of the long time of getting information and the extended time, now that things were moving, of not getting information. A single day's membership would inspire language of hints rather than the reference to a master spy. Um, I... Um, I think I agree. I, 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 I think I agree with that, Matt. Um, that is, I'm comfortable with the idea that, the, I mean, it makes more sense 
to think that they didn't have to approach him spontaneously the night before for the first time ever, right? Um, if he were had been for years convinced that you know they were Frodo's friends and were looking out for his well-being and they had recruited Sam to help them take care of Frodo and make sure that Mr. Frodo didn't do anything rash that would put him in danger, um, I can see that, right? And that he would not have necessarily had all that much uh, to do other than, you know, he himself would probably, Sam would be motivated to make sure that Frodo didn't slip quietly away. And so, you know, maybe he has been giving information about Frodo's movements and when he's going out on his trips and stuff and everything. Um, but nobody knows that the ring is the ring of power until the conversation that Gandalf has, the conversation that Sam overhears from outside the window, right? At the end of which he's caught. Um, so the fact that Mary is going to say things like, you know, we'll do our best to help you against the enemy, uh, really does suggest to me, uh, pretty firmly that Sam has clearly told them, you know, has, it is up through and not before that conversation, uh, that Sam's role, um, is, uh, uh, is, is, uh, 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 you know, that, that his role comes to an end after he reports on that conversation. Um, okay, I also suspect that Gandalf may have suspected the conspiracy, and Matt, this is my favorite uh, of your points. Not only does he talk about spies right before catching Sam, he tells Frodo to make sure Sam keeps quiet and see that Sam Gamgee does not talk. If he does, I really shall turn him into a toad. Perhaps it is nothing, but I suspect Gandalf may be trying to leverage or divert the most clever of the absurd little hobbits, rather than stir up further suspicions by snuffing out their conspiracy and in doing so bringing more attention to Frodo. Um, yes, he may have uh, he may have suspected uh, that uh, his Frodo's friends were uh, were in this something like this conspiracy, looking out for for him, and that it would be in Frodo's interest for. Uh, him to, you know, bring those that are trusty and willing. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so I thought this was a really great uh, 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 sort of trip back through the earlier passages. Isn't it fascinating to go back, think, you know, having thought uh, really carefully through chapter five as we've been, to now go back and look at those earlier references? Don't they look different, right? You can sort of see the, the, the kind of seeds of conspiracy all the way through. Um the business about, uh, you know, if, if, you know, see that Sam Gamgee does not talk uh, is really interesting. Notice now, you know, does this mean, this could just be, of course, Gandalf assuming that, um, that Sam gossips, right? So if Sam is going to go down to the Green Dragon and tell this story to everybody, there's, you know, there's going to be trouble, right? Someone's going to get turned into a toad if that happens. Um, but, uh, but it may be a kind of acknowledgement, right, that, um, uh, you know, he knows that there is uh, something like this conspiracy. Uh, I don't know. Um, it's either that or Sam has successfully pulled the wool over Gandalf's eyes. I have to admit, I kind of like that idea, uh, uh, you know, that we were working on last time. Um, but I would not, I would not be... Uh, I would not be surprised uh, to find that uh, that Gandalf did uh, suspect it. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, interesting. Kirkathart says, is Gandalf trying to covertly pass a message uh, through Sam to Merry and Pippin, right, not to talk? Um, 
maybe, maybe. Um, yeah, you know, like I know you're going to tell the others about this, but you know, make sure that they keep it quiet, kind of thing. Possibly, possibly. Um, I'm not sure. That doesn't seem to me like a very like an inescapable reading of of his line there. Um, but I can sort of, I can see it. I can imagine it. Um, anyway, okay. So thanks, Matt, for that excellent analysis. Let's go back to chapter five. Um, okay, hang on. Dragon Slayer Elf has one question, which I'll, I'll answer before we move on. Uh, was turning Sam into a toad an idle threat? We never see Gandalf change people or things into animals or other things. Uh, well... I am trying to think of any example of any such thing, and I can't. The only time we see anybody transformed into something else is like with Baron and Luthien when they put on the wolf haim and the bat fell uh, and apparently transformed themselves into a wolf and a bat. Um, oh, well, Bjorn, yeah, obviously, but Bjorn is... Um, uh, Bjorn is... is in a different situation, right? Elwing, yes. Yes, though that's... That's really intervention of the Valar, though. I mean, she casts herself into the sea and is transformed into a seabird. Um, but... Um, Yeah. <laughs> no, no bricktails. I don't think this explains the thinking fox. Um, yeah, so I'm thinking, okay, does Gandalf have that kind of power? Could he turn somebody into a toad? I don't know. But, um, there are, I guess there are two things that I would say about that. Thing number one. Turning somebody into a toad is a sort of fairy tale motif, right? Thing number two. Well, no. Subhead of thing number one. Uh, item. Turning someone into a toad is a fairy tale motif. Item. Uh, fairy tale motifs of that kind seem to be part of Hobbit tradition, story tradition. Remember the line in The Hobbit, right, about... Um, you know, the unexpected luck of widow's sons and, and, and uh, you know, things like that. That is, you know, this sort of, the kinds of stories that Gandalf told to the hobbits were stories which were very like traditional, um, uh, traditional fairy tale motifs, right? Um, so the concept exists. The very fact that the, the very fact that Sam is afraid of it, right? You know, you won't let him turn me into anything unnatural, right? Frodo is the one who brings it up, right? Um, he's the one who suggests that Gandalf might turn him into a toad and fill the garden full of grass snakes um, uh, in order to, to cow Sam, right? To, 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 to scare him. Um, so, it's again, it's Frodo who brings that up. In other words, it's clearly part of the local culture. It's part of the idiom. Is it really true? Can Gandalf really do that? 
you know, he does say, I really shall turn him into a toad. But is he bluffing? <laughs> I don't know. But um, do we have enough evidence to say f- for sure that Gandalf can't do it? I don't think we do. Um, just because we've never seen him do it uh, doesn't mean that uh, that he we really can be sure that he can't do it. Um, so, uh, so I don't know. Um, I am not, I would not be, I, my guess would be yes. My guess is that Gandalf could turn him into a toad. The only reason I guess that is that, um, the kind of magic associated with like the, the sort of fairy tale traditions that Gandalf raises, brings up in his story. Um, I don't think he's just blowing hot air. I think that he's, uh, he's talking about the way that Middle-earth really is. Um, and it's one of the things that we see, certainly through The Hobbit, is that many of the things that happen in fairy tales come true in The Hobbit. You know, we see them happen in The Hobbit. Um, so, anyway, okay. Um, uh, let's move on to the song. We have a poem to talk about here. Okay. Good, that's settled. Three cheers for Captain Frodo and company, they shouted, and they danced round him. Merry and Pippin began a song, which they had apparently got ready for the occasion. It was made on the model of the dwarf song that started Bilbo on his adventure long ago, and went to the same tune. Farewell we call to hearth and hall, the wind may blow and rain may fall, we must away ere break of day, far over wood and mountain tall. To Rivendell, where elves yet dwell, in glades beneath the misty fell, through moor and waste we ride in haste, and whither then we cannot tell. I hear how you can hear them dancing in circles around him, right? In this nice, regular iambic tetrameter verse. With foes ahead, behind us dread, beneath the sky shall be our bed, until at last our toil be past, our journey done, our errand sped. We must away, we must away, we ride before the break of day. Okay. Um, Now, it's based on the model of the dwarf song that started Bilbo and his adventure long ago. Okay. Yes. What does it have in common with it? Well, hang on. Let's read it. That is, let's go back to the dwarf song. And then we'll do some comparison and contrast. So as I do this, those of you who are in Discord with me here, I want you to start making observations, okay? Um, I want you to start making observations about this song, okay? Um, Oh, good. I see Marielle is already making some. I'm not going to be able to read all of that text, I think, Marielle, but I'll try to select some bits out of it. Um, uh, Anyway, but yeah, so some specific observations here. Far over the misty mountains cold, to dungeons deep and caverns old, we must away ere break of day to seek the pale enchanted gold. The dwarves of yore made mighty spells, while hammers fell like ringing bells in places deep where dark things sleep, in hollow halls beneath the fells. For ancient king and elvish lord, their many a gleaming golden hoard they shaped and wrought, and light they caught to hide in gems on hilt of sword. What do you notice? I, there's more, obviously. I'm not going to... I didn't quote the whole thing. But just the first few stanzas to get the feel of it. Um, 
What do you notice? What do you see? Farewell, we call to hearth and hall. The wind may blow and rain may fall. We must away ere break of day, far over wood and mountain tall. To Rivendell, where elves yet dwell in glades beneath the misty fell. Now, so the shape is the same, right? The the meter is the same. Hobbit meter, iambic tetrameter. The rhyme scheme is the same. Notice the original right has the, the A rhyme on lines one, two, and four of the stanza, and then the B rhyme is an internal rhyme on line three, right? Cold, old, away, day, gold, right? And we see the same pattern here, hall, fall, away, day, tall, right? Dwell, fell, waste, haste, tell. So the rhymes, the, the shape of the song is the same, right? Clearly. Amethorn says it's less solemn. Freda says the dwarf song feels darker uh, and has more longing and less excitement. Um, Yes, yes. I agree the dwarf song is more solemn. Um, and dark. Well, the darkness of it is emphasized by the fact that it's about darkness, right? Uh, in places deep where dark things sleep, right? In hollow halls beneath the fells. Um, this is about what's going on beneath the fells. Right? Notice the word uh, fell is used here, right? In Rivendell, where elves yet dwell, in glades beneath the misty fell. Through moor and waste we ride in haste, and whither then we cannot tell. Um, we're still beneath the fell, but in, beneath in a different sense. Beneath in the sense that a valley is beneath the, you know, the, a, a wooded slope, not beneath as, as in, in a cavern. Right. Um, so, the, you know, where we have, you know, dark things dwelling in caverns in the dwarf song, we have elves dwelling in the mist. Right. There's still mist instead of darkness. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good. Did I say I, I said tetrameter, didn't I? Did I misspeak? I hope I didn't misspeak. Um, yeah, it's iambic tetrameter in case I did misspeak. Um Okay, good, good. Let's see a couple other things. Um, yes, uh, uh, Marielle and JJ, I agree. It's 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 brighter and bouncier. The Hobbit song is. Um, look at the first two stanzas. One of the things I think that contributes to the bounciness. Farewell we call to hearth and hall! Exclamation point. The wind may blow and rain may fall, we must away ere break of day far over wood and mountain tall. So the first line is a sentence of its own. The last three lines flow together as one single sentence. Um, in the original, the entire stanza is one sentence. Far over the misty mountains cold, to dungeons deep and caverns old, we must away ere break of day to seek the pale enchanted gold. And it's not just that it's one sentence, right? Um, notice each line, although it's all one sentence, each line has a like a job, right? Far over the misty mountains cold. Right? By what path are we going? What is our destination? What are we doing? 
and why are we doing it? Right? Those are the like in in order. Those are the four, first four lines of the dwarf song. Uh, the first line of the Hobbit song is like exuberant farewell. Right? Farewell, we call to hearth and hall, a concept wholly alien to the dwarf song. The wind may blow and rain may fall. We must away our bricks. So these, the circumstances under which we're going to go, what we're going to do, and kind of the general direction that we're going to go, but we're not given a reason why, right? Um, uh, this first stanza could easily be about a hobbit walking party, right? Um, a long walking party, right? They're going to go far over wood and mountain tall, but uh, but there's no indication of... And, 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 and we'd, it's a stubborn hobbit walking party, right? Wind might blow and rain might fall, so despite inclement conditions, we're still going to be leaving, right? And we're going to go really far. So it's like an intrepid walking song, but it's still... Uh, it's still not... Um, uh, there's there's not anything like that sense of that sense of purpose, and let me see. I think uh, yes, good, Brandon. You had said this before. The Hobbit song is about where they are leaving. Uh, the Dwarven song is about where they are going. Yes, it is all about um, it is all about the the destination. Um, uh, Aruaran, whose name I still have a hard time saying, uh, uh, said the same thing. The Hobbit song is about leaving Hearth and Hall. The Dwarf song is about returning and reclaiming Hearth and Hall. Um, yes, yes, exactly. Uh, to seek the pale enchanted gold. We know the purpose of their, uh, of their journey. The Hobbits don't have a purpose to their journey. At least not that they sing about in the song, right? They're just going away. And their emphasis is on the hearth and hall that they're leaving. Okay, now, to Rivendell, where elves yet dwell in glades beneath the misty fell, through moor and waste we ride in haste, and whither then we cannot tell. Right? Um, they have no idea where they're going. Right? They're going off into the... They're going to Rivendell. They know that much. Right? But they don't have any idea where else they're going or where they might be leading from there. The dwarf song? immediately starts, they stop talking about themselves. They just have that one stanza about their own journey, right? And then they're entirely focused on where they're going, right? And telling the history of, of the Lonely Mountain, right? And the settlement there by the dwarves and the, 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 the wonderful works of hands by the dwarves there and then the coming of the dragon, right? That's, that's their focus. Um, they return to We Must Away, We Must Away, Right, you know, uh, at at three different points in the song, um, but that's just kind of the frame, right? The song is really about where they're going. The hobbits don't know. With foes ahead, behind us, dread beneath the sky shall be our bed, until at last our toil be past, our journey done, our errand sped. Even the, I don't even know how to. Um, I don't even know how to say it here. There's something... There seems to me to be a discrepancy, not a discrepancy, but a gap between the content of that third stanza and the sound of it. 
you see what I mean? If you just look at it, right? That is, if you just look at what it's about, about the enemies that lie ahead and the dread that lies behind, right? We are fleeing from danger into danger, as Frodo himself said, right? Um, the, the, their only bed shall be beneath the sky. They're going out into exile. They have nowhere to go. They, they will be homeless, wandering the world, right? Um, okay, that sounds pretty bad, those first two lines. Um, but the syntax doesn't doesn't sound like that. With foes ahead, behind us dread, beneath the sky shall be our bed. Doesn't that sound cheerful? I mean, if you didn't know what it meant, right, uh, the pure sound of it, whereas again, like the, you know, the dwarves of yore made mighty spells while hammers fell like ringing bells in places deep where dark things sleep in hollow halls beneath the fells. Um, the syntax is straightforward. Um, as, Matt, as Matt points out, the hobbits are using almost entirely uh, uh, monosyllables, which makes it sound more bouncy, too. Um, but with foes ahead, behind us dread, beneath the sky shall be our bed. Doesn't that sound more Dr. Seussy? Do you see what I mean? It's, there's, there's something... There's a, there's a kind of playfulness in the syntactic inversion there. Right? I mean, um, the subject, grammatically, of that sentence is bed. Right? Our bed shall be beneath the sky, with foes ahead, behind us dread. Right? Um, but the, again, the, 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 the way that that gets the subject gets deferred to the end of the second line, uh, and the you know the, the qualifying clauses come first, and with the internal the extra internal rhyme there, with foes ahead behind us dread. Normally, uh, you're supposed to only get that internal rhyme in the shape of this song in line three, right? Until at last our toil be past. But they give the extra internal rhyme in the first line, right? Which makes this stanza come out stranger anyway. But no, wait, they've been doing that all along, right? That's a uh, that's a, a different from the beginning, which I wasn't even calling attention to. Farewell, we call to hearth and hall in Rivendell, where elves yet dwell. They've added an extra internal rhyme all the way through, right? Um, which is kind of more fun and makes the whole thing sound. Uh, I think that's another thing that really uh, contributes to uh, uh, to the the sort of bounciness and fun of it. Um, Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, so with foes ahead behind us. So anyway, do you see what I mean about the fact that, like, although those two lines are technically really solemn, they don't sound really solemn? Um, and then, until at last our toil be past, our journey done, our errand sped. Um, so then they repeat three times in different words the idea of, and then we're going to be done, right? Our toil will be past, our journey done, our errand sped. Uh, <clears throat> just like that, right? Uh, until at last our toil will be past, our journey done, our errands. So it's going to be really bad for two lines, right? But then it's going to be so, it's, it, there's like a triumphant ending, clearly, in mind. We must away, we must away, we ride before the break of day. 
again, the density of the internal rhyme, right? We have just the one rhyme. Um, I mean, of course, it's only a two-line stanza. It's only a little refrain at the end, so it's not supposed to have the same shape as the other lines. But again, the, the three-time repetition of that one rhyme, um, you know, much more dense uh, 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 on the internal rhyme business. And three exclamation points, right? And the three exclamation points come in the context of what they just said. Our toil be past, our journey done, our errand sped. They're looking forward to coming back, right? We must away, we must away. We ride before the break of day. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you get the sense that... This seems to me the final touch uh, of this chapter, or rather of this conversation in the Conspiracy Unmasked. Remember last time we were focusing, I was focusing um, off and on, about sort of the level of knowledge, right? the level of understanding. Frodo thinks he knows so much more than they do, and it's his job to inform them, right? And he doesn't know how to tell them. Um, and then, of course, we find out, no, they actually already know it. Right. And uh, more and more, you know, it reveals more and more until like the inconceivable fact that they know about the ring of power and the enemy comes out. Right. Uh, uh, and that Sam was their informant. Um, so this there's this continual shift in the um, in our understanding of the levels of understanding of the people involved. And then we get this. Right. So just as it seems that, OK, actually, hey, so Marion. Pippin do get it, right? They get it. Do they? I don't think they do, right? Or at least they didn't when they got up the song, right? They had apparently got it ready for the occasion. They wrote it a while back. Had Did they write it since? They learned about the One Ring and the pursuit of the One Ring by Sauron? Probably, I think. Because the whole uh, uh, with foes ahead behind us dread thing suggests that they know about the foes. Um, but I don't think they get it. And I think that we can see, especially when we compare it to the original, this is a really upbeat song. We're saying goodbye to our homes. No matter what happens, we're going to go. We're going to go see the elves in Rivendell and who knows what we're going to be doing after that. And it's, you know, it's a serious business and we're being chased by foes, but soon we're going to be done triumphantly, right? Hooray, let's go. Um, yes, Karita, I think it's a really good way to say it. Uh, you know, that they intellectually know, but the gravity of the situation is not emotionally available to them. Yes. Um, notice what happens immediately afterwards. Very good, said Frodo. But in that case, there are a lot of things to do before we go to bed. Under a roof for tonight at any rate. Oh, that was poetry, said Pippin. Do you really mean to start before the break of day? And there, I think, is the dead giveaway, right? The song is not serious enough. The song doesn't really emotionally grasp the seriousness of the situation, right? They think they get it. They've told Frodo that they get it. They think that they, they believe that they get it. But the song suggests they don't really get it. And Pippin's reaction to Frodo taking the song at its word shows clearly he doesn't get it, right? 
oh, that was poetry. So the song doesn't take it seriously, and he doesn't even take the song seriously. Um, uh, it's just, it's just, it's just poetry, right? Um, now I agree. A couple of you are pointing out. Um, uh, let's see. Um, Rinruz is saying that uh, it must have been composed before encountering the Black Riders if Mary and Pippin composed it together. That would account for the emotional unavailability. I agree. I agree. I mean, the fact that they've not met the Black Riders show, but again, it's still relevant to the whole conspiracy and their purpose, right? Mary says, we're horribly afraid, right? But we're following you. Um, you know, but we're going with you or following you like hounds. No, they're not horribly afraid. Or at least Mary, maybe Pippin's encountered the Black Riders. Maybe he now counts as horribly afraid, but I don't think so, right? Look at what he says here. Do you really mean to start before the break? That was poetry. Do you really mean to start before the break of day? It, are these the words, right, of a hobbit who is horribly afraid of that Black Riders might catch up with them? Any moment, right? Frodo is horribly afraid of the Black Riders and has that moment earlier in the conversations where he imagines the walls disappearing and the Black Riders coming in among them right there and then, right? Um, no, Pippin's not there, right? Pippin's like, can't we at least sleep in tomorrow? That's not somebody who's horribly afraid of the Black Riders in pursuit of them. would talk, right? And Mary hasn't seen them uh, and has a hard time believing that there's anything that could scare Farmer Maggot. Um, uh, Emma Thorne uh, opines that uh, there might be more of Pippin's hand in the writing of that song than Mary's. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. It's hard to tell. Uh, but... Um, you could argue that Pippin's reaction suggests that he didn't have that much to do with the lyrics, right? That maybe the the more solemn lyrics were written by Mary, perhaps. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah, we'll see. Um, yeah, okay. All right, well, let's keep going. So anyway, I, I do think that it is that it is worth noting, that it is interesting, that the Hobbits, that Mary and Pippin don't really seem to grasp it, right? They don't fully understand what's going on. Um, this is going to be important. Um, and I think it's important to remember this in the context of what we're going to hear from them and what we're going to see them doing in like the conversation at Rivendell about whether or not they should be allowed to, to continue and all that kind of thing. Um, we have to, we have to kind of keep this context in both the context of the conspiracy and the context of the still, you know, the quite understandable and reality of the whole thing to them. Um, okay, so they're they're trying to figure out... So this is in response to, like, do you really mean to leave before the break of day? I don't know, answered Frodo. I fear those black riders, and I am sure it is unsafe to stay in one place long, especially in a place to which it is known I was going. Also, Gildor advised me not to wait, but I should very much like to see Gandalf. I could I could see that even Gildor was disturbed when he heard that Gandalf had never appeared, it really depends on two things. How soon could the riders get to Bucklebury, and how soon could we get off? It will take a good deal of preparation. The answer to the second question, said Mary, is that we could get off in an hour. I have prepared practically everything. There are five ponies in a stable across the fields. Stores and tackle are all packed, except for a few extra clothes and the perishable food. 
It seems to have been a very efficient conspiracy, said Frodo. Um, Mary's response, he has prepared, this is very prosy, right? Um, you know, the, uh, the providing for the stores and tackle and ponies and everything else, right? Uh, Mary has made some very prosaic prepar preparations uh, for their journey. That's cool, right? It is very efficient. Um, it doesn't mean that they understand the significance of it, right? Um, that they know what's at stake. Um, but that he only answered the second question, how soon could we get off, right? Um, how soon could the riders get to Buckleberry? Let's answer that question. But what about the Black Riders? Would it be safe to wait one day for Gandalf? That all depends on what you think the riders would do if they found you here, answered Mary. They could have reached here by now, of course, if they were not stopped at the North Gate, where the hedge runs down to the riverbank, just this side of the bridge. The gate guards would not let them through by night, though they might break through. Even in the daylight they would try to keep them out, I think, at any rate until they got a message through to the master of the hall. For they would not like the look of the riders, and would certainly be frightened by them. But, of course, Buckland cannot resist a determined attack for long, and it is possible that in the morning even a black rider that rode up and asked for Mr. Baggins would be let through. It is pretty generally known that you are coming to live at Crick Hollow. One of my favorite lines, certainly from this section of the of the chapter, is Buckland cannot resist a determined attack for long. A determined attack, mind. If the Black Riders just kind of attacked Buckland in a sort of desultory way, <laughs> right? They could probably hold out for some time. But exactly, JJ, I always have that same reaction. You know, JJ says that he likes the idea uh, that Buckland is going to withstand a determined attack at all, right? That they're going to that the 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 brandy bucks have the power to uh to hold back the black riders even briefly right um <laughs> exactly crooked art says they can resist a half hearted attack for ages exactly exactly um you know I, I mary doesn't get it mary doesn't understand uh, what the Black Riders are, none of them really understand um, what the Black Riders are. Um, and notice how casually Mary says things like, they could have reached here by now, of course. Right? They could be here any second. So let's go to bed. <laughs> right? But he's, because he's just, he's trusting in how things work. Right? He's trusting in the other brandy bucks, um, that they're going to stop them at the gate. Um, you know, Buckland is, is ready for this sort of thing. You know, they're used to the idea that, like, creepy crawlies are going to try to come out of the old forest, right? They have, they have, they have hedges in place for this kind of thing, right? So, um, uh, you know, it's, um, it's, they're fine, right? Surely they don't have to worry about anything until tomorrow, uh, at, uh, at, at, at the absolute least. Um, and yeah, I agree, Crooked Heart. It is really funny to imagine, you know, the Nazgul being stopped by hedges, right? It's like, oh, well, they have a very large and quite thick hedge. I don't think there's anything we can do about that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so here's Frodo contemplating. Frodo sat for a while and thought. I have made up my mind, he said finally. I am starting tomorrow as soon as it is light, but I am not going by road. It would be safer to wait here than that. If I go through the North Gate, my departure from Buckland will be known at once, instead of being secret for several days at least, as it might be. 
And what is more, the bridge in the East Road near the borders will certainly be watched, whether any rider gets into Buckland or not. We don't know how many there are, but there are at least two and possibly more. The only thing to do is to go off in a quite unexpected direction. Now, this uh, is this is an argument uh, that we are going to see made many times over the course of the Lord of the Rings. Right? What should we do? We should do the thing that the enemy least expects. Right? Um, now, I think it's so. This is the very first time. Um, uh, this is the very first time that we um, see this kind of argument being made, right? Um, Frodo's reasoning seems pretty good. It would be safer to wait here than to go by the road, right? Um, he can't if he leaves Buckland by the north gate. The gatekeepers are going to see him, right? And everybody's going to be talking about the fact that Frodo just arrived and now he's leaving, right? Um, Mr. Frodo has left Buckland is going to be the talk of everybody. And so therefore, you know, the, the black riders could lean on somebody and find out that information. And what is more, the bridge and the East road are going to be watched, right? The black riders are around. This is almost certainly true. Um, so, uh, so yes, the only thing to do is to go off in a quite unexpected direction. Clearly that's so I, here, the first time we see it, this argument seems absolutely inescapable. Frodo seems to be absolutely dead on here. Um, if they go by the main road, the main road is way too easy. Just the thing that keeps Buckland defended, right? The hedge. And Matt, you're right. I don't want to underrate hedges. You know, old growth, uh, uh, tall hedges are quite significant barriers. I'm not saying they're not. Um, but... Um, uh, I still don't think that uh, uh, the Nazgul would be permanently put off by them. Um, but anyway, um, so this choice to go off in an, in an unexpected direction seems, seems quite wise uh, on Frodo's part. Remember, of course, the context, right? Remember the fact that the rest of the hobbits still don't really get it, right? They don't get... Mary clearly doesn't fully get the Black Riders, as we see from his assessment of the comparative military preparedness of the Bucklanders, right? Um, but that can only mean going into the old forest, said Fredegar, horrified. You can't be thinking of doing that. It is quite as dangerous as Black Riders. Not quite, said Mary. Sounds very desperate, but I believe Frodo is right. It is the only way of getting off without being followed at once. With luck, we might get a considerable start. But you won't have any luck in the old forest, objected Fredegar. No one ever has luck in there. You'll get lost. People don't go in there. Oh, yes, they do, said Mary. The Brandybucks go in, occasionally, when the fit takes them. We have a private entrance. Frodo went in once long ago. I have been in several times. Usually in daylight, of course, when the trees are sleepy and fairly quiet. Um... Fredegar Bolger's horrified response. You can't be thinking of going into the Old Forest, right? The Old Forest is part of his world, right? He's heard stories about the Old Forest. Um, uh, no one ever has any luck in the Old Forest. You'll get lost, right? So you're certain to get lost if you go into the Old Forest. The Old Forest is quite as dangerous 
as the Black Riders. Um, in a sense, the fact that he says the Old Forest is quite as dangerous as Black Riders shows that he's taking the Black Riders relatively seriously, right? Because he knows the stories about the Old Forest. It is a certainty in his world. And it is clearly one of the scariest things that he knows of in his world. Um, you know, the Old Forest is clearly Fredegar's, like, personal boogeyman, right? Um, he is not willing to believe that the Black Riders could be more dangerous than the Old Forest. Um, Mary, on the other hand, downplays the Old Forest, right? Oh, no, you can go into the Old Forest, right? Frodo's been in. I've been in there several times. Um, I love the line when the trees are sleepy and fairly quiet. Fairly quiet, right? Those trees in the Old Forest, you know, kick up a ruckus, right? But they're comparatively quiet during the day. Um... Uh, yeah, yeah. Um. <laughs> um, yes, Matt, I also do uh, love the, the line, when the fit takes them. Uh, Matt calls it a tacit admission that it is a mad plan worthy of a Baggins. Um, yes, yes, it is only in, in, in sort of mad fits that they will sometimes go into the old forest. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Fredegar's response. Well, do as you think best, said Fredegar. I am more afraid of the old forest than of anything I know about. The stories about it are a nightmare. But my vote hardly counts, as I am not going on the journey. Still, I am very glad someone is stopping behind who can tell Gandalf what you have done when he turns up, as I am sure he will before long. Um, I love the little glimpse that we get into Fatty Bulger's life here. Right? He's more afraid of the old forest than of anything else he knows about. Why? Because he's heard stories about it, right? And he believes them too, whatever, whatever Ted Sandyman may say, right? Like Sam, he has grown up hearing stories, fantastical stories, terrifying stories about the old forest, right? The old forest is clearly featured in many stories that he has heard, and those stories are a nightmare. They've probably literally given him nightmares over the course of his short life, right? Um, but he's not going on the journey, right? Um, my vote hardly counts as I'm not going on the journey, he says. Um, uh, but, but notice how he doesn't, he wants to emphasize that he's not merely chickening out, right? It's kind of convenient for him because he really doesn't want to go into the old forest. So it was clear that, you know, he had decided to stay home before there was any question of them going through the old forest, right? Um, but, um, anyway, so... Uh, uh, he's he, it's, he's not just turning tail at this at this point, right? Um, but um, uh, but notice how quick he is to emphasize that he's not just being a coward, right? I'm glad someone is stopping behind who can tell Gandalf what you have done when he turns up, as I'm sure he will before long. My role, though I'm not coming along with you and like going into exile alongside you, Frodo, my role is still a totally important one. Notice something, though? Uh, his role in the party, the significance of his role, was n would not have been clear. They thought Gandalf was going to come, right? Um, Fatty's determination to stay predates Gandalf's tardiness, right? Um, anyway, let's I'll keep going. Fond as he was of Frodo, Fatty Bulger had no desire to leave the Shire, nor to see what lay outside it. His family came from the East Farthing, from Budgeford and Bridgefields, in fact. 
but he had never been over the Brandywine Bridge. And yes, um, uh, uh, S.R. Perry, this is exactly why the Bulgers are all living in Budgeford in Lotro. Yeah. Um, but he had never been over the Brandywine Bridge. His task, according to the original plans of the conspirators, was to stay behind and deal with inquisitive folk and to keep up as long as possible the pretense that Mr. Baggins was still living at Crick Hollow. He had even brought along some old clothes of Frodo's to help him in playing the part. They little thought how dangerous that part might prove. Also, they didn't know how useful that part would prove. I mean, the job of staying behind to deal with inquisitive folk is a useful one, right? You know, to have somebody there who's going to cover Frodo's tracks um, so that it takes people a few days more to figure out that he's gone um, is useful. Now, remember, they didn't know that there were going to be Black Riders pursuing. They didn't, which means they didn't know how important it was. Um, they just knew that Frodo wanted to go off without a lot of talk, right? So his job is to prevent talk as long as possible about Frodo's departure. Now, of course, it's not just inquisitive folk. It's not just inquisitive Bucklanders who might be stopping by to have a chat with Mr. Frodo and welcome him to the neighborhood. Now it's servants of Mordor who are liable to be showing up and looking for Frodo. Um, and for him, Fatty, to be playing the part uh, with some old clothes of Frodo, to be actually masquerading as Frodo so that people could see him from a distance and think that Frodo is still there, now becomes a very, very dangerous role indeed. Um, and I think that that's really... Um, I think that's really neat. Right? I, I, I think that it's neat to see he's still willing, right? Um, again, Fatty isn't a complete coward. Um, he doesn't. He's fond of Frodo, but he doesn't want to leave the Shire or see what lay outside it. Fatty Bulger does not seem to have embraced that adventuresome subculture that we see Merry and Pippin have, right? Um, Fatty Bulger might have heard some of old Mr. Bilbo's stories too, but they did not have the same impact on him. But he is a devoted friend and willing to help uh, Frodo. And has made a sacrifice. It seems like a small deal. He had never been over the Brandywine Bridge. I believe the implication there is until today, right? He came with Mary, bringing Frodo's stuff. So he just crossed the Brandywine Bridge for the first time, right? So he has never been to Buckland before. He's now come to Buckland. Remember, he's been hearing stories. He lives in the East Farthing. He's been hearing uh, 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 horrible stories about the old forest. And here they are quite close to the old forest, right? He must be kind of afraid of Buckland. Um, but he's come. Right? He's left his comfort zone, like Sam left his comfort zone. Right? He's left, um, he's left the part of the Shire behind that he's lived in his entire life. Um, so it's, it's cool, right? What Fatty's done is 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 important, is significant, uh, is good. Um, exactly. Uh, Tarlonio is saying, you know, Fatty's had his adventure crossing the bridge and getting near the terrible old forest. Yeah, and that seems like a huge thing to him, right? In his, it's not just it seems like it is a huge thing in his world. Right? I mean, how much more adventurous do you want a hobbit to be? That's he's gone, well, literally beyond the pale, right? Um, he's gone, gone outside uh, his world entirely. 
um, and is prepared to go to the people who live in Buckland, whom he doesn't know, and masquerade as somebody else, right? And what happens when they find out? Um, there might be a certain scandal. He might get in trouble, right? What's the master of the hall going to think of, like, this random bulger who is staying in Mr. Frodo's house and pretending to be Frodo, right? You know, so again, compared to Black Riders and, and Old Man Willow and, you know, and, and going into permanent exile with Frodo and everything, it's kind of tame, right? But again, when you think and you try to put yourself into Fatty Bulger's position, put yourself into Sam's position, right? Again, the way they look at the world this is a really countercultural big deal that he's doing here, right? And I want to make sure we give Fatty Bulger the appropriate level of props for what he's actually uh, what he's actually doing. Uh, Bricktails asked, "Was Fatty semi-aristocracy like Frodo, Mary, and Pippin? Or remember, Mary and Pippin are not semi-aristocracy; they are aristocracy. Frodo might be called semi-aristocracy." Um, but uh, certainly after uh, Bilbo has enhanced the wealth of uh, the uh, of the of the of the Bagginses, uh, semi-aristocracy seems appropriate. The Baggins don't have the Bagginses don't have the lineage that the Brandy books who are descended from the original uh, in, in, in inhabitant, you know, the, the original settlers of the Shire and um, uh, and uh, uh, the Tooks, who, of course, are the traditional Thanes. Um, so yeah, the, they are aristocracy. Frodo is semi-aristocracy. Fatty Bulger? We don't really know. I mean, I think probably... Um, now, I'm forgetting. We don't get the Bulger family tree, do we? Do we get the Bulger family tree? Hang on. I happen to have my Return of the King right here. Let me look at my family trees here. Let's see. Tale of Years. Family trees. Okay, Bagginses. The Tooks. No, and then the brandy box, and Samwise. Is he on it? He's his cousin. Let's see. Uh, okay, no. I don't see him on the Baggins family tree. There's some bulgers involved. There's some bulgers on the Took family tree as well, but I don't see. Oh, there he is. There he is. Fredegar Bulger, son of uh, Rosamunda Took and Odovacar Bulger. So he is, let's see, Mary and Pippin, oh goodness, but he's like two generations, he's like maybe third or fourth cousins to Mary and Pippin. Um, he's a ways down the road. But he is in the family. His mother's a Took, so there you go. His mother's a Took, who married a Bulger. Rosamunda Took, daughter of Sigismund Took, uh, son of Hildebrand Took, who is one of the children of the old, of uh, Geronti is the old Took. So there you go. Um, so semi-aristocracy, yes. What is his standing in the Bulger family? I don't know. I mean, is he going to become like the patriarch of the Bulger family someday? No idea. Um, that seems kind of likely-ish. Um, yes, Tom, we will see Fatty Bulger develop in interesting ways later on, right? Uh, the fact that he's going to become a guerrilla uh, 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 warrior, right, a, a, a resistance leader, um, is interesting, right? Can you notice what he's doing? 
he's still remaining within his element, right? He's still staying in the East Farthing. He's not going to leave the East Farthing. He's going to become a hero locally, right? A local kind of hero. Um, but he's um, uh, but he's not going to be uh, um, but he's not going to be going off on any quests, right? Anyway, okay, let's keep going. Excellent, said Frodo, when he understood the plan. We could not have left any message behind for Gandalf otherwise. I don't know whether these riders can read or not, of course, but I should not have dared to risk a written message in case they got in and searched the house. But if Fatty is willing to hold the fort, and I can be sure of Gandalf knowing the way we have gone, that decides me. I am going into the old forest first thing tomorrow. Well, that's that, said Pippin. On the whole, I would rather have our job than Fatty's, waiting here till black riders come. You wait until you are well inside the forest, said Fredegar. You'll wish you were back here with me before this time tomorrow. It's no good arguing about it any more, said Mary. We have still got to tidy up and put the finishing touches to the packing before we get to bed. I shall call you all before the break of day. Um. Yeah, yeah. Um. Let's see. J.J. is saying it. It sounds rather elitist. Oh, they're foreigners, so they probably can't even read. Remember, J.J., it's not obvious these things are human, right? Remember, they act like animals half the time, right? They, they seem to pursue things by smell, and when they dismount from their horses, they crawl along the ground, right? You know, uh, so, like, what, what even are they, right? Now, they communicate, right, the, the, the cry that they heard, the song that they heard, which had words in it, right, um, suggest that, I mean, they, they do communicate with each other. Um, we know, of course, they can talk, as, as, as we've had reported conversations uh, uh, with them uh, from both Gaffer Gamgee and Farmer Maggot, but still, like, the, you know, saying I don't know if they can, if, if they can read or not, right? Even if they can't, even if they're literate, which remember, why assume that? Why assume that anyone is literate? I mean, it's not really primarily a literate society yet, so it's not really snobbish to assume that somebody is illiterate. It's normal. Most people are illiterate. Why be literate? You don't need to be. You know, you don't, literacy is an optional skill uh, in a society of this kind, by and large. Um, but uh, um, but even if they are literate, right, would they be able to read something in their language, right, um, in Westron? So, anyway, yeah, um, exactly, Terlonial, not, not everybody in the Shire is literate. Now, the literacy rate on the Shire is relatively high. Um, the fact that they have a post, a quick post service, right, shows that, uh, you know, although the the prologue says that by all means, no, by by no means, all hobbits were literate, right? But those that were really like to send, uh, um, really like to send uh, to send letters around. Um, anyway, so yeah, there's no reason to assume that they're literate, and it's not snobbish to assume that they're not literate, or to question whether or not they're literate. And of course, who knows if they can read in uh, uh, in their in their language? But in any case, um, uh Crooked Heart is wondering if Fatty Bulger is literate. Good question. Probably. I would think so. I would think so. Um, it seems to be the people of the great families are literate. We can tell that from the invitations and the responses to the invitations to the birthday party in Chapter 1. Right, Everybody who's on the guest list, 
you know, they, they, they send written replies. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I would definitely think that, um, that Fatty Bulger is, is almost certainly literate. Um, oops, sorry. Go back, Narnian, go back. Sorry. Losing track of myself. It's almost field trip time. Um, I'm trying to push through to get to the end or almost the end. In fact, we're kind of at the end, almost at the end. Um, yeah. Now, um, uh, what were we talking about uh, before we were talking about literacy? Um, oh, we're talking about the old forest, right? Um, yeah, Lincoln says that when you first read the chapter, Fatty's ranking of the Old Forest as worse than the Black Rider seems charmingly naive, uh, but Frodo and company would have done better to heed his warnings. Yeah, no, I don't think they would have done better to heed his warnings and not going to the Old Forest at all. Going to the Old Forest at all is still clearly the right move, um, but uh, but I agree. I agree that they are... Uh, um, Fatty's... Fatty's... Uh, uh, fears about the old forest are very far uh, from unfounded, right? Uh, and Mary's... Con- if you had to choose, like, which of the two things is more borne out by events, right? Mary's confidence or Fatty's fear? Fatty's fear clearly wins, right? Um, yeah, exactly, Lincoln, yes. His assessment of the forest's danger is better than Mary's. Absolutely, I agree with that. Um, okay, we have one last passage that I wanted to look at, which I don't think we're going to get to tonight, um, and that is Frodo's dream. So hang, wait for it. We will. Do, I, I've been looking forward to this one, but we're going to have to go on looking forward for a little while because it's field trip time, um, and I don't want to shortchange Frodo's first dream. Go back and reread Frodo's first dream. We'll start with that next time, and then we will move on to uh, chapter six and uh, get into the old forest for next time. So... Uh, when, when I say next time, don't forget, next time is two weeks from now. Next week, I'm going to be away. Uh, I've got a family trip next week. Another family trip next week. Um, uh, so we will, uh, the, so two weeks from now, and then I'll be home for three Tuesdays in a row, which is pretty awesome. Um, I have to admit, I got really nervous earlier on because late this afternoon around dinner time, actually, uh, I lost power here. We had a really, really violent thunderstorm, uh, and I lost power for m- more than an hour. And I was like, uh, "Oops! I have to hope I'm going to be able to get my power back in time to do class tonight." Um, so, um, so that's going to be fun. No gravity. I do don't have a song written uh, to start my family trip. Um, I certainly have no plans to be away before the break of day. I've done enough of that in the last week. Uh, my travels this past Sunday, which I was complaining about by Twitter, uh, which I know several of you saw, uh, I had left, we had left our, 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 our residence. We left where we were staying at three o'clock in the morning in order to get to the airport where eventually we were delayed for six hours. We didn't get home until midnight. So done with that. We're going to leave after the break of day, Doug, on it. Um, so, uh, and, uh, and yeah, Tom, I'm driving. No airplanes. No airplanes. I am driving. Thank you. Uh, I'm going to stay on the ground for this family trip, so that'll be nice. Anyway, okay, so no class next week. We'll do class again in two weeks where we will look at Frodo's dream, and then we will um, 
uh, and then we will start chapter six and look at the old forest. All right. So thanks. Oh, uh, when does Treason of Isengard start? Very soon. Uh, keep your eye out. Well, we will, I, I promise we will have that. I will have that schedule posted before the end of this week. Uh, so keep your eye out on social media and stuff. I'll be posting that. Um, that w- when uh, we're going to start the Treason of Isengard course, I hope. Uh, it should be right around the middle of, of, of July, maybe even the week after I return. Um, so two weeks from like tomorrow. Um, so anyway, looking for really, really excited about uh, Treason of Isengard. Um, but tonight, now it's field trip time. I want to go back uh, to Even Dim tonight. Um, uh, so let's see, we're going to. Oh, okay. Um, actually, I don't think I need to uh, fellow up. I, I want to save the hunters to fellow up with others. Um, I have a milestone. We're going to meet at the at the High King's Crossing again. Okay, so we're going to meet at the High King's Crossing, and we're going to uh, and and I want to go towards Anuminus. All right. Um, so I, I milestoned the High King's Crossing, so I can go straight there. Um, so any hunters that are in the room should fellow up with other people to be able to whoosh them there. That would be super helpful. Um, uh, so thanks for that. If you need to a hunter port or something, you could come up here uh, on the... Yeah, it is. There you go. Awesome. Um, I've got two captains waiting at Hiking's Crossing, too. Balancing and Brandon, you can send that request as well. Excellent. Excellent. Um, okay, so I'm going to I'm gonna take off, and then when I go there, I'm going to um, I'm going to answer... I'm going to talk about bridges, because like, like I said, there was much discussion about bridges, uh, but... Um, uh, so I, I will talk about that, and that'll give you guys plenty of time to arrive. Those of you who are coming in by hunter port or by horse or something, I don't know some of you are already here, which is great. Okay, so here we are at the High King's Crossing again. Now I want to talk about bridges. In fact, I want to start off by uh, doing one more uh, notes and queries here. Okay, this is from uh, the aptly named Arnorion. Much has been said in the last few episodes about the in-game design of the Baranduin Bridge, as well as the imagined but reasonably placed bridge at King's Crossing near the outflow of Nanuiel. That's where we are standing right now. I agree that as the landed descendants of a seafaring culture, the Dunedain of the North must have been making use of the waterways extensively, but I cannot understand how the river could be navigable by deep-water ships from mouth to source, given the placement of the Sarn Ford. Arnorian, you are awesome! I totally forgot about Sarn Ford. Ford. That is absolutely my bad. Um, absolutely. Sarn Ford is a ford, right? It's a shallows in the river, and it's south of the Shire. There is no way, because of Sarn Ford, you're absolutely right, there is no way that they could have sailed ships all the way from the sea up to the lake. Clearly couldn't have happened. Um, so, absolute total kudos. I forgot about Sarn Ford. It's absolutely there. No questions. So it seems that this stony crossing must necessarily have stopped water traffic at this very shallow point, if it was indeed passable by wading. I can imagine small canoes or possibly flat-bottomed barges getting through, but nothing more. Uh, it is possible that a portage system was used to connect the upper and lower portions, like what the Gondorians used to pass the Rauros Falls, but that seems like a lot of work. With the Sarnford barrier firmly established in the text, it seems reasonable that the bridge allowing the Great Road to cross the river and many other and any other hypothetical bridges could have been smaller in scale than that what, than what would have been required to allow a, a large ship to pass. Absolutely. So, 
what I've been saying for the last couple of weeks is like, yes, I could see how river barges, right? Uh, you know, like the kind of, um, the kind of, you know, the, 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 um, the title of this post of Arnorian's post on the, on the discussion board was low bridge, everybody down, uh, of course, from the famous Erie Canal song. And I certainly do agree that, um, the, uh, the, this river could easily have been navigated by river barges, like the kind of barges that they had on, on like the Erie Canal and, and other uh, similar canals and rivers. Uh, my problem was in imagining why the Arnorians would have used those kinds of rivers when they would have been uh, most likely still engaging in, in, in trade by sea as well. Sarnford, of course, is the answer. Absolutely, it is the answer. Um, so yes, with Sarnford in the question, uh, or in the in the equation, there's no reason to think uh, that they would not have been u- using river barges, and that makes all kinds of sense uh, to imagine. Let's see, yeah, from here. Uh, so if Sarnford uh, is down south of the Shire, like down around here, right, that they could use their seagoing ships to that point, and then river barges connecting up from there, and you know, a ships much more like the one that we saw sunk in the river. Uh, so. Very good. I'm completely convinced. Um, I think that uh, that that is entirely possible, which means that even this bridge then is not unreasonable. Um, the other thing, of course, that I was reminded uh, in this and other posts uh, is the fact that within the game, within the in-game storyline, the water level of the lake is not the same as it always was back in the old days. Um, the River level, the, the, the water level of the river has been artificially raised, not artificial, not artificially by men, um, but by somebody else. But anyway, it's deliberately higher than it was back uh, in the days when Anuminus was thriving. And that, of course, is important to remember when you're looking at things like the level of the, uh, potentially at the mouth of the river and, uh, and, and its level there. So, okay. Um, having, I hope, uh, uh, reconciled ourselves to the bridge situation uh, permanently. And again, thanks to everybody who sent me thoughtful emails and stuff about this. Um, uh, we're going to uh, we're going to carry on, and we're going to go to visit Anuminus. We'll see the sort of the northern parts of Evendim on a later time, and we'll probably have to come back to Anuminus because we're certainly not going to get through the whole city today. But I want to look at the main land approach. So again, as you can see uh, by the map. Uh, Anuminus is right on the is right on the lake, right? It's right on the water. So this road that we're taking in here from the High King's Crossing is the primary. There is a mountain pass that descends down into it here as well, as you can see from this jiggly line here on the map. Um, so there is a high pass that comes across the mountains, but this is clearly the main easy um, approach by land, right? So this is the primary land approach to Anuminus that we're taking. That seems to me important. Uh, when we look at what we're going to see. So the question is, um, what is the, what do we see? What do we learn about Anuminus? What what, what can we see? So let's see, we've got these posts here. Is there something on top of those posts? I think they're decorative. There's certainly no gate here. You would think, notice what there isn't here? Fortifications, right? There was never a gate there. There's not a wall. Look at how defensible that is. Right? This is this is the primary land approach. 
Yeah, you just throw a little wall in there, right, with a gate. Man, right, this thing becomes a death trap for anybody who's trying to advance on a Numinous. But there's no evidence that there was ever a wall here, right? This is the first piece of evidence, as we approach a Numinous, that we have to, um, to believe that a Numinous not so interested in fortification. No, we're interested in decorative posts, right? And beautiful trees. And little, even this little island over there, right? That little island which has the, res- the resurrection circle, right? Um, is, uh, just has a few posts on it. Again, it looks like it was, there was maybe some kind of like gazebo thing over there, right? Anyway, so here we are approaching the city with the posts on either side. Now, can someone explain this to me? I've never gotten this. Griffith had a really hard time with this, too, when we were in Evenden. What is up with this bluish-green stuff? Is this meant to be metal? It sure looks like metal when it's on a door. But what are these big panels of metal? They're all over these buildings. In the position of what looks like they could or should be windows, right? But they're not windows. They're, like, what, metallic plates? I don't get it. I've never gotten it. It does look like verdigris, uh, Catriana. That's why I assume they're metal plates, because certainly it looks like verdigris here on the door. Um, That it's, you know, bronze or copper, right? So it would have been shinier, right? It would have been fancier back in the day. Um... But it looks like, I mean, they're in places where it looks like there ought to be windows. Um, yeah, are they shutters, maybe? Bronze shutters that go over the windows, maybe? I don't know. Okay, we've got like a little building. I don't know what this building was. It's got two sort of small doors. It certainly doesn't look like a fortification now, keep in mind, the water level has risen, right? So this thing over here wouldn't have been an island back in the day. Um, so I don't know what this little house would have been, or what big little house, um, over uh, right next to the main pathway here, you know, the main uh, the main road into Anuminus. Not really sure what's the story with that. Of course, that's where the the camp of the rangers is right now down there where you travel to when you come in okay so here we are still on the main road uh flagstones right these are clearly uh way to fly, but that not decorated kind of not fancy which is a slight bit of a disappointment um i kind of wonder of course even dim is one of the earlier not the earliest but one of the earlier areas in lotro i wonder if they were making a numinous now if they would make it with carved flagstones i wonder but anyway, um, here we're coming. What do we meet here? I mean, apart from a few random worms and things that you guys are, are killing. There is a building. That looks like a significant building. What is it? Of course, all the Lotro players know what this is. Halve Erendur. The tomb of of Eärendur, king of Arnor. Eärendur was the last? Was he the last of the northern line here? 
Yes, he was. Um, not of the whole line, of course. Um, but he was the last king of Arnor in Enuminas. Erendor was. Okay, so this is his huge tomb. Huh. Look at the size of this puppy. This is big. Right? Very impressive. Notice that the the door, the stairs are flanked by two pillars that look just like the pillars that were flanking the road all the way in, right? And he's got his the big door of his tomb with the nice Arnorian star, right? The nice uh, star of the Dunedain, seven-pointed star. Very lovely, right? Notice you've got the one big star, and then you've got seven stars around it. One, two, three, four, five, six. No, six. It's the seventh, right? Yeah, six stars around it. I forgot to say this. It's not two stars. That's one star divided between the two panels of the door. Okay. Um, Want to go in? Hey, let's go in. If you're very low level, wait for a second to come in. <laughs> yeah, let the high level characters uh, take out, because there are a bunch of tomb robbers in here. Right? Okay, here we are. Big old tomb with a statue on top. Is this Erendur? I think that looks like the statue of Elendil that we've seen in other places, right? So this is supposed to, what, mark his line? Because this isn't his actual tomb. Like, his bones aren't in there. Clearly. His bones are in this one over here, right? Follow the sheep. Sheep knows where it's going. As does the master tomb robber who just got offed. There. Okay. This, right? This is the tomb of Eärendur himself. This big, imposing thing. Presumably, this is the sarcophagus here, right? This is where that... Oh, boy, he regens fast. Um, presumably, this is where his kingly bones are resting, right? And then we've got this big, impressive structure here behind it. Okay. And then, so, therefore, this business in the middle, right, presumably, is what, because I still think that this is a window, the statue. But I'm cheating when I say that, because I'm only saying that because we've seen bunches of statues of a in different quests that we do around Evendim, and this looks like it. So, I'm kind of thinking that that's, uh, uh, but that's a window, what, which would also make sense, right? To have this. So what's the first thing you see when you come into the tomb? It's basically like his status marker, right? It shows you like he is of the line of a window. Um, so, you know, like the, the statue of the high king himself, uh, uh, you know, the progenitor of his line marks his tomb. And then around here, you notice we got like littler ones, right? Presumably these are also tombs around here, so like members of his family, maybe, I don't know, servants or something, I don't know, if like the household would be buried with him and stuff, and there were other wings back over here behind this fellow, right, which have fallen down, right, so we can't go there, but, um, so this is Eärendur and all of his family, Eärendur, you know, of the line of Elendil, right there, okay, right, good, um, so, uh, exactly, Roni, it's, it is the same statue as on the island with the salamanders, which is exactly what I was thinking. Um, 
so what do you notice about this? Mike, exactly right. Um, Mike, you're thinking exactly the thing that I'm thinking when I come into Enuma, so we can, can stop killing Tomb Raiders now. Um, and what I'm thinking is, you come into a numinous, and what's the first thing you see? Tombs. Huge tombs, right? Um, we know this is a Numenorean thing, right? It was one of the signs of the decline of Numenor that they began to build enormous tombs, right? It's one of the signs of the, of the uh, decay of Gondor as well, that they begin to uh, build over-elaborate tombs, right? So tombs of this size, right on the main entrance in, a little bit of uh, concern, right? And what do we have over here? Somebody else's tomb. This one a little bit waterlogged, right? Because the... But this is uh, how the Elendur, who was Eorendur's dad, as I recall. All right, I'm checking my genealogy here. Yes, Elendur. Um, the second to last king... Uh, Arnorian king in Enuminous. I say in Enuminous because you'll remember uh, that was the time when the kings that reigned in in Enuminous were the kings of the United Kingdom. Uh, when the king when the kingdom split between Cardolan and uh, Rudaur and Arthedain, then the Arthedanian kings uh, who retained the who were the descendants of Elendil and who retained the technical kingship of all of Arnor um, moved to Fornost. That's why, again, if you look at the genealogies, um, I'm in Appendix A, the Realms in Exile, looking at the genealogies there. Um, uh, Emloth of Fornost is the eldest son of Eärendur. So Eärendur, whose tomb we were just in, is the last king who ruled uh, in, uh, uh, in Enuminous. You can tell on account of how his son was called Emloth of Fornost. Uh, uh, that's when it is during the Civil Wars that the capital uh, of the Northern Kingdom of, the Ar- of Arthedain uh, moves to Fornost, uh, which is a very strong military position, as we'll see when we check out Fornost. Uh, this, of course, as we have already seen, much less interested in defense. So let's see. Who else do we find here? Who's this? Somebody else's too. Hald Valandur. Okay, he's another one from the same line. What do we see in his tomb here? No bad guys, but it's in much worse shape, right? A bunch more of uh, these tombs, which are a little bit different. You're going to get that verdigris stuff all over them, more of this bronze plating, bronze and marble tombs. Probably some more over there, but that all collapsed. Look at the lovely filigree work here, right? That's really nice, the trim here. All done in marble. We get down here. Man, this guy had a big family, maybe. And this, presumably, what the Kirkroom was just standing on is his yeah, Valandur's. But, so, notice, of course, as we go in, as makes sense, we're going up the line. Uh, the ones furthest from the city are the, la- the 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 latter, right? The first one that we encountered was the last king in Enuminous. The one before that was his father. Uh, Valandur is, if I recall, yes, Elendur's father. So we're we're moving we're moving directly up the genealogy towards Elendil, um, which of course makes sense as they as they get older they 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 uh, you know as the line continues they they 
they plant them further and further away. Uh, that all makes sense. But this one, notice this one didn't have the big old statue of Alendo. Now, again, you know, we have to be fair. There's a big cave-in up here. We don't really know all of what was in here. The ceiling is lower. There's no big statue of Alendo as soon as you come in. You know, it's still nice and everything. You know, this is still a king's tomb. Um, does it seem a little bit less pretentious than Ayurendor's? Can we see some kind of progression of... Uh, now, I mean, I know many of you are thinking, hey, uh, Elendil's tomb, which presumably would have been the first, is anything but non-pretentious, right? It's uh, huge, and certainly it absolutely is. But, um, let's see, this is not a tomb, right? No, this is just, I don't know what's up with this building. What do you think this was? Stables, Maybe? Uh, maybe this was stables. That's what I'm thinking with that big stone partition in the middle. Any hints on here? What's up with that? What's up with the carvings? Somebody keeping score? Right? They're tied three to three? I have no idea what that means. Kind of peculiar markings. Because they do look like carvings. Maybe they're not original. Maybe they're recent carvings. I don't really know. Kind of strange. But this seems a, a, a smallish and rather plain building. So maybe this was um, like the uh, stable master back in the day, right? Still had a nice little arched ceiling, right? But, you know, we're still in the middle of this. Look at the big old statue moving up there behind. Wow, that's impressive. Okay. The next two, let's see. Go back up the genealogy. Whom should we expect next? Tarondor? Now, let's see. Do we get Tarondor next? Nailed it! Oh, yeah. How's Tarondor? The fourth to last king in Enuminous. Okay. Can't get in here for some reason. This door is enormous. But notice that it's much plainer. No big old star of the Dunedain here. It's a strong door, right? Reinforced door. But uh, nothing too, nothing too schmancy. Got a nice little arch here, though. Once upon a time. So let's see. Come on. Who's this over here? Not the dude standing or anything, but, uh... Oh, Arantar. Yeah, that's Tarandor's granddad. Where's Tarkil? This isn't a tomb, right? I know there's a whole bunch of mobs in here. Okay, this is, this is Tarkil. We missed him, because he's mostly underwater. Okay, so this is Tarkil, the father of Tarandor. Yeah. Look how plain this one is. I mean, it's hard to imagine it, right, without the flooded basement effect here, but is that his tomb? That looks exactly like the partition in the stable. Seriously? Is there a second story? I think there is, right? Yeah. 
Uh, can you get in back there? Is there anything in there? Can you get in the back? <laughs> They're pretty jumping off. <laughs> no? No, nothing. What is in that upper story? Yeah. So I don't even know where his sarcophagus is. I don't think it's this. Maybe this was just the basement. No idea. But anyway, this one doesn't even seem to have a door. It's an archway. It doesn't even look like the archways around the doors of the other ones. Okay. And this one is uh, Ar uh, uh, Aramtar, as we saw. Now here's a big one with a big old bridge. Oh, this looks like a big deal. Look at that. This is the one with that huge old statue. Okay, this is by far the most pretentious one we've seen. Who's this? Let's see. Big old warrior statue. Ah, how the Lendo itself. Okay. This, you see now, all right, it's the Tomb of the High King, right? So what a beautiful moon tonight. Uh, it's the, it's, just, it's the Tomb of the High King. So, okay. All right. Um, <laughs> JJ's, JJ's lost. Where are we now? We're here by the. Okay, I'm not. We're not going to go in here uh, because we'll get half the people killed. But um, okay, so we can understand why the tomb of Elendo would be kind of a big deal, right? It's not really a bad sign that they would make a huge old statue with the, like above the huge old tomb of a window, right? Which is actually much bigger below the ground than it is above. Uh, but, um, okay, so that's fine. What happened to uh, Isildur, Valando, and Eldacar? We're still missing three. Here's another one over here. So we can do some comparison here. Ah, how the Eldacar, here he is. I, I completed the tombs of Evenden? Seriously? Hang on a second now. Who's included? Let's see. Erendor, Elendil, Velando, Elendil, Tarondor, Eldacar, Tarkil, and Arontar. Huh. So you notice who's missing? Which of the kings of Anuminus are not included? Two. Right? Isildur and Velando. That's interesting. Now let's uh, check out Eldacar. So Eldacar is the son of uh, Velando, yeah. Uh, the grandson of uh, Isildur. So let's see, what do we have here? All right. Okay. And these, do we see these little side tombs? What are these little cabinets here? Is that text? I think it is. I think it's an inscription. So I think that these are little little tombs set in the walls. Right? Maybe that's where they bury the help. I'm not sure. 
wow, this place is huge. Look at this place. Yikes. Kind of plain, though. I mean, not much in the not much in the way of ornament. Unlike your cloak there, which is really quite attractive. Flight. Um, is your character name a reference to Miss Flight from, uh, uh, from, what's it called? Dickens. Blanking. Oh my goodness. You know, that really famous Dickens novel? Um, Bleak House. Oh, man. You know I'm tired. Okay, yes. Bleak House. Miss Flight from Bleak House. Uh, I don't know. But anyway, okay. Um, where's the dude buried? Anyone find the corpse of Eldacar yet? Yikes, look at this. More areas. This place is ginormous. But again, apart from the quite attractive trim, fairly plain. We've got these little shrinelets here. Like if those are little sub-tombs, they're, they're fairly understated and comparatively few. Ooh, shiny floor, though. Oh, it's water. Okay. Yeah, well, that's fine. It's just wet. Wet marble. Very shiny. Okay. Uh, what do we have here? I mean, like, sorcerers and bad guys, obviously, but... Any, anything here look like the Tomb of Eldacar? No. I don't think so. I think we have not yet succeeded in finding Eldacar's body. Boy, these guys regen really fast, too. Hope I'm uh, helping some of you to uh, accomplish your Slayer deeds. Um, hmm. Anything over here? No. Dead end. What on the earth was the point of this anchor? Is there a hole? There's a gap. Mind the gap. Okay, fine. Um. I can't find an Eldacar. There's no other way around, right? Hmm. We didn't find him. So again, it's interesting. This one is huge. Again, and it's a fairly early one, right? Fourth King, right? Um... How do you get over there? The interior design of this is fairly strange. I'm thinking, okay, so I'm going to go with a theory. Because the, this is too weird. This little antechamber where this dude stands over here, apart from the fact that there's this is just a blind nook with no point to it, right? Let's see, it's got these two notches up here. And the fact that the trim doesn't line up with the other trim. And the fact that there's a gap here in the wall, which you can clearly see there's a gap there in the wall. I'm thinking this is a later construction. This this is this is a passage that got bricked up at some point. That's my theory. So maybe that led around to the actual tomb of Eldacar himself, and the tomb of Eldacar itself has been sealed away for some reason. Um, I don't really know. 
Okay. All right. Glad I solved that problem. Okay. Um, okay. So yes, I think that uh, I, I believe you're right. I, I believe that the tomb of uh, the tomb of Vilandil is in the city and not out here. Um, it's interesting, though, right? That how the Eldakar is further in. We can kind of look at a detailed map. Further in than the tomb of Valendo, right? There's how the Eldakar, and then there's there's how Valendo. So obviously, we build the tomb of Valendo first, right? Um, I mean, being as he predeceases him by what three hundred and forty-ish years, right? So uh, clearly, um, uh, clearly. The tomb of Valendo gets built first. And they kind of squeezed this one in. There's no tomb for a silver anywhere here. Right? We just don't see a tomb of a silver. What is this little building? Who knows? Oh, interesting little ruin. Guardhouse, maybe? Uh, lunch pavilion? No idea. Lots of other tombs. Um, and here's the entrance to the city. As we approach. Now, I won't go any further in here tonight. I gotta let everybody go because it's getting late. Uh, but um, we'll go into the city and look around next week. Um, Numinous is lovely. Very, I, I really like Numinous. Even though it's a kind of dangerous place if you're on level. Um, but um, let's, uh, so let's explore the city more next week. Um, or, sorry, not next week. Week after next. Um, but isn't it interesting that the first thing we see about a Numinous as they built it in-game is the progression of tombs. Um, which seems both kind of admirable and questionable at the same time, right? Admirable that, you know, sort of the memory of the kings of old is what you are greeted with as you come in. That seems appropriate, right? But the fact that the first thing that you come across are tombs for the dead, uh, given what we know of the Numenorean history, seems like uh, maybe not such a good thing, maybe kind of a questionable sign of the beginning of the decline uh, of Numinous here. All right, next week, or again, next time, we will go into, uh, into actually, no, probably not. Next time, we will probably go into the Old Forest, because we're going to start Chapter 6 and look around in the Old Forest. So we might do the Old Forest next time. Um, but we might uh, uh, we might come back to it. And next time we come back to even then we'll go into Numinous. Uh, uh, so anyway. So, thanks everybody. I will see you guys in two weeks. Thanks for joining me on our field trip, looking around the tombs here this evening. And uh, I look forward to uh, meeting with you guys again and starting Chapter 6 and seeing what we have to see. So thanks a lot for joining us, everybody, and I will see you guys in two weeks. Bye now.